Am I on? Yes, I am. Good. Welcome to all of our campuses, to Zoe's and uh, West and our traditions of venue. Welcome to you guys. We're glad all of you are here. Um, earlier, as I was uh, trying to get ready for services, we experienced a power failure. Um, it was awful uh, because I was needing to tweak the message and get it on my iPad, but I, I couldn't and I desperately needed power, but I didn't have it. And I felt incredibly helpless knowing what I wanted and needed to do, but unable to do it. You know, power failures are, are awful in the physical realm and also in the spiritual realm. We, we can experience power failures in our spiritual lives as well. You know, we, we can read about how the power of Jesus is supposed to impact our lives in, in significant ways, and yet there are times when we don't see it. We don't experience it. We long for a greater experience of the power of Jesus, and yet it's not happening. So why is that? What is it that can help activate the power of Jesus in our lives? Well, that's what this teaching series is focusing on. For the next few weeks, we're going to try and answer that question by looking at a fascinating passage in the Bible. In chapter 24 of the book of Luke, in this, in this passage, we are introduced to two ordinary people like you and me, people who know about Jesus. You could even say that they, are, that they have a relationship with Jesus, but they are missing the life that he intends for them to experience. And so let me read a bit of their story, um, and then we'll unpack it, beginning in verse 13 of Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these, the, the, there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Okay, so we have these two guys, these, these two men who were obviously personally connected with Jesus. They were part of the group who followed him. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. They referred to him in this passage as a prophet and they even admitted that they had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had hoped that he was the Messiah. And everything seemed to be lining up in that direction until Thursday night when they experienced a spiritual power failure. The religious leaders arrested Jesus. He was beaten and mocked then sent to Pontius Pilate who sentenced him to be crucified. And so these two men had watched their hope die right before their eyes. They had watched their dream of redemption die as Jesus took his last breath. 
And even though that morning some followers had found Jesus' tomb empty, these guys didn't know what it all meant. They They were sad. They were distressed. They were confused, feeling lost, certainly feeling disconnected from the power that they had seen Jesus demonstrate. And so the text tells us that as they walked, Jesus started walking with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus plays dumb initially, and he asks them what they're talking about. And and they go into this whole description, which we just summarized. Now, to me, the the critical part of the story is how Jesus responds to them. I mean, here they are, very familiar with Jesus, very interested in Jesus. They had sat under his teaching and all of that. We would even say, we might even say that they were committed to Jesus, but they were missing something very important. And Jesus points it out. He tells them exactly, and he tells us exactly what they were missing. Verse 26, he said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter in his glory? See, notice the root issue that Jesus diagnoses here. Jesus says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. They have a faith problem. A faith problem deficiency. That's what's causing them to miss out on all that Jesus has for them. And so Jesus wants to help them grow in their faith, not only at an intellectual level, but also at a heart level. He wants them to understand and embrace the fullness of who he is and what he has done. When the truth of those things penetrate our hearts, our lives are changed I mean, the power of Jesus gets activated at a deeper level. Okay, so so now Jesus has diagnosed the problem. It's a faith problem. What does he do then? What does he do to awaken and reignite their faith? Well, look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in Scripture concerning himself. See, Jesus has a little Bible study with them. He he starts going through the Old Testament from the beginning, and he shows them how all the events of this past weekend, all those events were a part of God's plan all along. But they had missed this, right? They didn't really understand who Jesus was and why he had come. In other words, the foundation of their faith was pretty shaky. They needed their foundation rebuilt, which is what Jesus is doing here. He was rooting their faith in the fullness of who he is and why he had come. Even though they knew Jesus at one level, they didn't understand the most important thing of all, why he had come. And we need the exact same thing in our lives. When we're not experiencing the fullness of Jesus' activity in our lives, it's probably a good idea for us to look at our foundation, to make sure we understand in our head and in our heart, to make sure we understand and are embracing Jesus' mission. So Jesus starts showing them from their own scriptures how everything that happened was a part of God's plan. And we're, we're talking about writings that were, that were written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And yet they specifically pointed to why Jesus came. I mean, talk about a faith builder. 
talk about a faith builder. So let's look, at, let, let's look at some of the Old Testament passages that Jesus likely referred to that day as he was helping build the faith of these two followers with the hope that our own faith will be made more complete. Our ho- own faith will be strengthened. Now, there are many um, passages we could look at, it, um, um, but, but let's narrow it down to a few of, of what I would consider to be the foundational passages that reveal this about Jesus and why he came. Um, the first is Genesis chapter 3, which we've looked at fairly recently, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But it, it is still fascinating to me that immediately after Adam and Eve sin, and they unleash the curse of sin on humanity and on our planet. So immediately after all that happens, God says to the serpent, who kind of started all this, says to the serpent who attempted then to give in, he says to him, God says to him, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, this is referring to a specific person, one of the offspring of Eve, who will crush Satan's head. But in doing so, Satan will strike his heel. It is a powerful picture of God's plan to redeem what the enemy had just ruined. And the plan involves this offspring, i.e. Jesus, experiencing pain at the hand of Satan, which is ultimately what the cross was, right? But then, ultimately, this offspring triumphs over over the enemy, over Satan. And that, of course, is the resurrection. Okay, Genesis 3, third chapter of the Bible. We, we see a picture, a prophetic picture of God's plan. All right, so we transition from Genesis to Exodus, second book of the Bible. What happens in Exodus? The delivering of God's people from tyranny in Egypt. And I'm gonna come back to um, that section in a few minutes because it's very significant. But, but I want us to move to the third book of the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, This book is somewhat difficult for us to understand. In fact, most people who start, hey, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, you know, and they start with Genesis, and then sometime in February, they're in Leviticus, and they're kind of dying, okay? They're like, oh, man, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, Leviticus is just a tough book for us to understand because it, you know, it has all these laws about cleansing and purification, and it's so specific to that culture that it's just hard for us to understand. But there is one chapter in this book that we must understand, and it's very significant, very relevant to us, and that's chapter 16, where we read about the Day of Atonement. You see, the the Day of Atonement, sometimes called Yom Kippur, was the holiest day of the year for the Jewish people, and the reason is because on that day, on the Day of Atonement, God gave provision for all the sins and defilements of the past year to be removed. He gave provision for all the sins and defilements of that particular year to be removed. And it's fascinating to see how this took place. In Leviticus 16, we read about how on that day, two goats were brought to the high priest. One goat was allowed to live it became known as the scapegoat. Literally, it did. It's called the scapegoat. And look at what happened to this goat. The high priest would then lay both hands on the head of the live goat. 
and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. See, well, what a powerful picture of the removal of sin. By placing his hands on the animal's head, the high priest was symbolically transferring the people's sins to the goat. And this, this scapegoat was then released to leave the city and die in the, in the wilderness, to die in the desert. The other goat was slaughtered. And some of the goat's blood was taken into the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies, very important to understand this. The Holy of Holies was the room in the temple, in the, in the temple where God's presence dwelt. It was the Holy of Holies. And no one could enter the Holy of Holies. Um, there was a curtain dividing it. No one could enter except the high priest. And only, he could only enter on one day a year, the Day of Atonement. It's the only day he could enter. So the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. He, he would enter the Holy of Holies with the blood of this goat. And he would sprinkle this blood on what was known as the mercy seat. As a way to make atonement for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. And so, so notice here in Leviticus, notice the facets of forgiveness that are already being established here. One, it is rooted in the idea of atonement. The people's, and what the word of atonement means is that the people's sin is paid for by someone else. That's atonement. It's paid, their, their sins are paid for by the sacrifice of another who was innocent. So the animal took their judgment. Another thing it teaches us here about forgiveness and taught the Israelites is notice how God's provision involves the removal of sin. Right? The, the actual removal of sin. The scapegoat takes their sin and removes it. It leaves the city. It, it removes it from them. And third, the blood of the other goat opens a pathway into the Holy of Holies. That's the only reason the priest could go in there, because the blood of the, the other goat. The only reason he could go into the presence of God was because of the blood of the goat. So from early on, the Israelites knew. They're doing this every year. They knew that they were separated from God because of their sin, right? And they knew that the fundamental problem they had was not the Roman government. <laughs> no, the fundamental problem they had was their sin, keeping them from God's presence. And they also knew it was God's heart to remove that sin. But what they, because they were doing this every year, but what they didn't realize was that God's plan was to one day provide an ultimate solution, a once and for all sacrifice who would die for all their sins, a scapegoat. God was going to provide a scapegoat who would take upon himself the sins of the people and then be led out of the city to die. That's how the Messiah would redeem his people. That's how he would save them. It's all the way back in the book of Genesis, excuse me, the book of Leviticus, right? 
And when he would save his people, a door would be opened for them to actually enter into the Holy of Holies, right? The very presence of God, which was amazing. And this is why you can read in Matthew, the moment Jesus died, the curtain that separated us from the Holy of Holies, the curtain that kept us out of the Holy of Holies, what happened? That curtain split in two from top to bottom. It started at the top, something God initiated, and it split in two. Through Jesus, we have access into the Holy of Holies. We have access to this holy God. We can enter into his presence. Why? Because our sins have been forgiven. Okay, so I'm guessing that as Jesus walked along the road with these two men, he showed them how his crucifixion provided everything that the Day of Atonement pointed towards, only this happened to be God's permanent solution to our sin problem. There was no more need for a yearly day of atonement. This was a permanent solution. Forgiveness had had, had been graciously and has been graciously provided by God through his son. That's the redemption the Messiah would provide, even though the people didn't understand that. They they wanted wanted the, uh, the Roman government to be overthrown. But Leviticus 16 shows us exactly what the redemption would look like and what it would accomplish. Okay, another very significant passage that I, I would be fairly certain, we'll find out in heaven, I guess, but I would be fairly certain that Jesus mentioned as he's talking through the prophets and Moses and the prophets, another passage I, I would be fairly certain he mentioned is found in the, in the book of the prophet Isaiah. There are many passages in, in, in Isaiah that speak of Jesus' birth and his character and all that, but, but in, in chapter 53, we see a vivid description of Jesus' death. Now, before we read this, before I read this, remember, this passage was written hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, hundreds of years. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, the prophet Isaiah penned these amazing words. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears was silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is amazing. This passage was written 700 years before Jesus died. And yet it describes it as if Isaiah was standing right there before the cross. being pierced for our transgressions. Like a lamb led to slaughter. Who stood up for him, right? Caught up, cut cut off from the land of the living. Assigned a grave with the rich. Joseph of Arimathea, right? A wealthy man provided a tomb for Jesus to be laid in. I mean, it's amazing. But, But it's not only those details that make this so powerful. It is also the theological significance that Isaiah provides for us here. The meaning of all of this, right? Verse 5, he was pierced. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed. Why? For our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We got peace, he got the punishment. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him. Verse 12, for he bore the sin of many. I mean, why did Jesus have to die? Because it was the only way he could truly save us from our sin. He, He came to die for us. He died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. And this wasn't some coincidental circumstances, you know, Jesus happened to find himself in, you know, just coincidentally, wow, here I am, you know. No, this was God's plan all along, to send a Messiah to rescue his people. But again, they thought the rescue would be political. That's what they wanted. They were hoping the Messiah would come, Jesus would overthrow the Roman government. But God had a different plan to rescue them. Even though it was not the rescue they were hoping for, it was the rescue they desperately needed. And we needed. I can imagine that if Jesus quoted this passage from Isaiah, the light bulbs began to turn on in their hearts and their heads. They were no doubt familiar with this passage, but it hadn't made sense until that moment. You know, sort of, sort of like a movie that we see that doesn't make sense um, and, and until someone, you know, uh, later on tells us a key part of the plot <laughs> and we're like, oh, of course, you know, now I understand. Now I get it. Jesus had to suffer and die. He took upon himself the punishment we deserved so that we could enter into a relationship with him. Okay, so we have Genesis 3.15, and then we have Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, and then we have Isaiah 53, 
There's one more passage I want to look at that is found in the book of, of, of Exodus. Um, and I want to go, go back there. We've been studying the latter chapters of Genesis for the last two months, how Jacob's um, sons moved to Egypt. Remember, during the famine, they moved there. And, and Jacob dies, and then Joseph dies. And what happens over time, after Jacob and Joseph die, is that a new Pharaoh comes on the scene. He doesn't know anything about Jacob, has no relationship with Joseph. He comes to power, and he decides he doesn't like all these Israelites in his land, and so he forces them into slavery. And so for 400 years, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, oppressed and, and mistreated. But God sends a deliverer, a guy named Moses, to help set his people free, right? And, and remember the story, there, there, if, if you're familiar with the story, there are 10 plagues that God pours out upon the Egyptians, to try to get Pharaoh to let God's people go. None of them, none of which move Pharaoh's heart to let the people go until the 10th, until the final plague. The, this 10th plague involved the angel of death moving throughout the land, killing every firstborn son. Now this is important to, to realize. The angel of death was going throughout the land, not just the, among the people of, of Egypt, the angel of death was going to everyone, Israelites, Egyptians, everyone, which tells us something about how all of us deserve judgment. The angel of death was, going, was, was poured out upon everyone. But before, just before the plague was poured out, God gave his people, he gave the people of Israel a way to escape this divine judgment. They were to take a lamb, an innocent lamb without blemish, and they were to kill it. And they were to take the blood of that lamb, and they were to put the blood on the doorpost of their house. That shed blood would protect them from the angel of death. See, the angel of death would then pass over them. They were not protected because of their goodness. They were not protected because of their nationality. No, the only thing that enabled them to escape God's judgment was the blood of this innocent lamb. So that's what happened. That night, the Israelites put the blood of, of, of the slain lamb on their doorpost. And as the angel of death moved throughout the entire land, including Pharaoh's house, it passed over any house that had lamb's blood on it. This became known as Passover, and it is celebrated by the Jewish people ever since. In fact, that very week, just a few days earlier, on Thursday, Jesus had eaten the Passover meal with his disciples, with his disciples. And you heard about the, the announcement earlier, the Passover celebration this, this Thursday, the Seder meal at the Bel Air, and, and uh, where you'll have the opportunity for more of this to be unpacked and how the Passover, Jesus really fulfills the, all the, the Passover elements. But So at one point, he's, he's partaking the Passover meal with them, right? And at one point, Jesus took the bread, unleavened bread, symbolizing the flight of the Israelites from Egypt. No time to wait for bread to rise, right? Unleavened bread. And he broke that bread, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, 
It was one of, one of four cups in the, in the entire meal. It was the cup in the Passover celebration that actually symbolizes redemption. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. See, what Jesus is saying is that the Passover points to him. The entire Passover, it points to him. He is the sacrificial lamb who has been slain on our behalf. When his blood is placed on the doorpost of our hearts, the angel of death passes over us. We are freed from God's judgment, not because we deserved it, but because he has given his life on our behalf. We are covered by his blood forever. I mean, it's amazing to see how the Old Testament points not simply to Jesus as a person, but rather to Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He had to die on the cross in order to rescue us and save us from our sins. It was God's plan all along to send his son, the Messiah, in order to redeem what the enemy had done in Genesis 3. It's a plan that actually gives us access into an intimate relationship with a holy God, our holy God, access to his presence. Okay, so, so let's step, step back just a moment and think about what all this has to do with faith. Jesus declared that these two followers were slow to believe. The language there actually says slow of heart to believe. They didn't understand the centrality of the cross in God's plan. They thought all sorts of positive things about Jesus. They knew he was sent from God. They knew he did miracles, et cetera, et cetera. But they hadn't understood and embraced his primary mission to save us from our sin and to free us to be God's people. This truth is absolutely life-changing if we believe it. If we believe it. Which, which raises the question, do we believe it? What about our faith in Jesus? There, there are probably some of us here who believe Jesus was a good teacher, a prophet, maybe worked some miracles. But you know what? That kind of faith will not transform your life. It may give you some pithy sayings to pattern your life after, but it won't impact your heart because you're missing the essence of who Jesus is. He came to rescue you and me from our sin. To be transformed by Jesus requires faith in him as Savior, as Savior. Have you placed your faith in him as Savior? In a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. But before we go there, let me address those of us here who have placed our faith in Jesus as Savior. The same question can be asked of us. Do we believe? Are, are, are we living in the fullness of what Christ has done? Your sins have been placed on Jesus. Think of that. He has paid for all of your sins. You can enter into God's presence 24-7. His face is always towards you. Why? Because of Jesus' work on the cross. Not because you're so wonderful. It's because of Jesus' work on the cross. Do you believe that? 
Are you living and embracing the fullness of that truth? You see, sometimes as Christians, we lose sight of what Christ has done. And, and here's how we do that. We begin falling back into a spirituality of fear and guilt. Feeling that God couldn't possibly love us after what we've done. Right? Feeling distant and afraid of him. Cloaked in shame, head down. Or maybe we're working so hard to make sure God keeps smiling at us, right? We're acting like God's our employer. We're just working so hard just to keep him happy. Either way, we're not living by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We're not either way. We're missing the life Jesus paid for us to experience. And the reason we are slow of heart to believe We are not allowing the fullness of what Jesus has done to truly penetrate our hearts. It is, and it's so sad. Some of us spend our whole lives trying to pay off a debt that has already been paid. We can't believe it's true. (laughs) So we just keep working it off, trying to earn something that has already been given to us. What difference might it make for you today to truly believe that the cross of Christ is absolutely sufficient for you and your relationship with God? What might it mean for you to believe that nothing, absolutely nothing else is needed for you to be loved and accepted by God, no matter what you have done? Nothing else is needed to be loved and accepted by God. What impact would that have if you and I believed that? I remember hearing a story years ago about a young woman in a church service like this. When it came time for everyone to partake of the Lord's Supper, she couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. She was so gripped by guilt and shame for things she had done She just sat there and wept. At one point, the very wise pastor of that flock went over to her, and knowing her hesitance, knowing why she was hesitant, he went over to her and he sat next to her and he whispered in her ear, take it, it's for sinners. Take it, it's for sinners. And the same thing is true for us. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. (laughs) He died for us. In just a moment, we're going to pray, and I want to ask the the campus pastors to come up at their campuses as we spend some time in prayer and then responding together through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Let's just quiet our hearts. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper in just a couple minutes. Ushers, you don't need to come forward yet. I want to just quiet our hearts for a moment here. Let me give a couple of invitations of, of faith. First, there may be some of you here, and I mentioned you just a moment ago, where maybe for your whole life you have believed 
that the way you get to heaven, the way you get to God is by trying to be a good person. Try to follow the golden rule and go to church when you can. That's maybe what you've been taught, what you've believed your whole life. But notice, if you believe that, notice who you're really trusting in to save you. Yourself. You're trusting in your own goodness. You're trusting in your own effort, not Jesus. And let me tell you, the Bible is very clear. Trusting in our own effort doesn't get us anywhere near God. It doesn't get us into God's presence because he's holy. There's a curtain separating us. We're sinners. We need a way in to the holy of holies. And that way is the blood of Jesus. And so there may be some of you here and what you need, maybe you've never heard this before, but what you need is to trust Jesus, to place your faith in Jesus as Savior, as your Savior who died in your place. So what I want to do is I want to lead you in a prayer right now where you can enter into this relationship with God through Jesus So pray with me in the silence of your heart if this is your desire. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy. You are absolutely holy, and I'm not. There is a wall of separation between us because of my sin. And there's nothing I can do on my own effort to be holy again. There's nothing I can do but you did something. You sent your son, Jesus, and this was the plan all along for centuries. You sent your son, Jesus, to die for me. (laughs) To take the penalty I should have paid to take that upon himself. Jesus, you died in my place. You took the hit I should have taken. And I am choosing right now to believe that. I am choosing to place my faith in you alone, Jesus. I bring to you all my sin and all my fears and all my shame and all, my, all of it. I just bring to you all my failures and all my good deeds even. I bring it all to you. Realizing you're the only way in to God. So I ask you now to forgive my sin. You paid for it. I ask you to forgive it, all of it, past, present, and, and anything, and all the sins I'm going to even commit in the future, all of it paid for. And so I, I receive your forgiveness right now. And I ask you to come live in me through the presence of your spirit, that I would become a temple of God, where the very presence of God lives in me. Through the Holy Spirit, I pray for that. So God, I want to I pray for anyone here who just prayed with me that prayer. Thank you, Lord, <laughs> that the angels in heaven are rejoicing. Thank you. I pray they would grow in their relationship with you and what it means to live in the fullness of your grace, to live by faith in the work of Christ. I pray for them to grow. And now a second invitation for those of us here. We've prayed that prayer. We know Jesus. Maybe we've prayed it years ago, maybe recently, but we know Jesus. 
but his desire is that we live by faith, that we live in the fullness of what he's done. And some of us here, maybe we haven't been. We've let guilt and fear and condemnation creep into our relationship with God. We feel like God's turned his face away because of some failure, some sin we've committed. We feel distant from God. But the Bible tells us that because of what Jesus has done, God never turns his face away. (laughs) He is always for us. His heart is always towards us. He always loves us because our sin was already paid for. So Holy Spirit, I want to ask right now that you would take the truth of the cross and here's the challenge, Lord. We've heard this over and over again, you know, all this stuff. It's so easy for this just to become some, some fact in our head rather than a reality that is alive in our hearts. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, you would make it alive in our hearts, this wonderful truth that our sin is paid for in full, paid in full, and that we have access 24-7 into your presence. And when we come into your presence, we don't have to grovel and fear and all that. We, we come into your presence as beloved sons and daughters of yours. So thank you for that. We just pray for more faith to believe that foundation. Everything else builds on this foundation. So we want more faith. More belief and embracing of what you have done for us. So now, Lord, we do thank you for an opportunity to tangibly express our faith in you by the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Let me explain what we're gonna do. Ushers, if you wanna make your way forward, but don't don't pass the elements out just yet, but if you would at least come forward and just wait up here, that would be great. The Lord's Supper, you don't have to be a, 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 a member of Christ's community. Maybe it's your first time. It doesn't matter. The key is, have you placed your trust in Jesus? If you have placed your trust in the sufficiency of Christ on the cross, we invite you to partake. And we want, as we, in just a moment, when these elements are passed, we want to partake in such a way that stirs our faith. This is not just some ritual we do here because we're in church. It's an expression of our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. (laughs) That because of his blood shed for us, because of his body given for us, we are loved and accepted eternally. It's amazing. So I invite you, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, I invite you to partake. Here's how this is going to work. When, when the, when the um, tray comes by, there's going to be a stacked, two cups stacked on top of each other. Just take both of those cups. The bottom one holds the bread and the top one holds the juice. Take both of those and hang on to them because I'm going to come back up here and we're going to partake together of those. So, so take, take the stacked cups, hang on to it. We'll partake together. And I just want to encourage you, as these elements are being passed, to focus on the Lord, just to maybe be in prayer and gratitude to Jesus for what he's done. And let your faith be stirred in the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross for you. Something that's been planted in God's heart from eternity. And right when sin entered the picture, he already had a plan. 
and we're the recipients of that. So Holy Spirit, open our hearts to the love of Jesus as these elements are passed. Okay, ushers, go ahead and pass the elements if you would. they were eating, Jesus took the bread broke it and gave it to his disciples saying take and eat. This is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of him. Then Jesus took the cup said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me.
Jesus, thank you that we are loved. We can stand in your presence as forgiven sons and daughters because of your work on the cross. And, and we pray even as we worship you in these, these minutes here that our hearts would be open to your amazing love for us. The price you paid for us. We love you. We rest and we rejoice in your love for us. Thank you, Lord. Why don't we stand as the worship team's gonna lead us. We have intercessors available to my right and left. They're wearing red lanyards. They would love to pray with you. Um, you can slip out of your chair and go over to one of these folks. They'd love to do that. So, Father, we pray for these people, these intercessors. You would pour your spirit upon them. That you would do amazing things. And now set us free, Jesus, to worship you. Thank you for giving your all for us. We stand forgiven. We stand in your grace. And we are moved to praise you because of it. How deep the Father's